This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. There are fantastic jewelry designers, there are fantastic ideas, but such an important turning point has not been done yet. And uh, for the moment, in, from an historical point of view, I think that we are stuck with El Saperetti. This was the last revolution in jewelry design. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewelry, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewelry editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. I'm delighted this morning that we are going to talk about the great Elsa Peretti, the trailblazing woman and legendary jewellery designer who pioneered jewellery that women could buy for themselves and turned the tide of 20th century jewellery design. We are going to talk about some of her iconic designs, her personal vision that changed the way women wore jewels forever, her collaboration with Tiffany that began in 1974, and even half a century later, some of these designs still appear on celebrities' wrists as the most fresh and most modern. And I'm thrilled that we have here Stefano Palombo, who is the member of the board of Nando and Elsa Peretti's foundation and acted as Elsa's right hand for over 25 years. Thank you, Stefano, for joining us this morning. It's so great that you've taken time out of your schedule, dashing between Barcelona and Rome, taking care of all of Elsa's foundations and houses and jewellery production to join us. So first of all, Stefano, I wanted to talk about that incredible image by Helmut Newton of Elsa when she was modelling. It's on a Manhattan rooftop. She's dressed in a sort of playful fashion take on a bunny outfit designed by the US fashion superstar Holston. And she's got the Manhattan skyline behind her. It's like an iconic glamour 70s image. How did that come about, that image? Carol, this is not just a picture in my eyes. Oh. This is really something more important. It is uh, the synthesis of a unique period that marked New York as the capital of art and culture in the 70s. It was a picture done in 1975, exactly. So Elsa had already signed her contract with Tiffany. And it was in her apartment, uh, in her penthouse in New York. It was the penthouse that Holston uh, gave to Elsa when he moved to 65th Street and to the Olympic Tower. It was done at 11 o'clock in the morning. Elsa, yes, was, as you correctly say, she had this bunny dress done by Holston, but she was also wearing her diamonds by the yard. And what she was very proud of this picture is that she was wearing the Ferragamo shoes of her mother that were perfect for that dress. And when she came down and she arrived to the, to the terrace where Helmut Newton was waiting for her to do this shot, what Elsa always repeated to me is that Helmut was flabbergasted when he saw her and he did the most important picture of his life in my eyes. And imagine that Christie's sold one copy of this picture in 2020 for $400,000. I mean... 
This is more than iconic. Because it does sum up, as you said, that kind of glamour, sexually charged moment where everything was coalescing in New York. And um, it's all in that one image. But she was a model, wasn't she? Yes, she was. And at the time, uh, obviously, New York was very important. As modeling, she started She started in Spain, as everybody knows, when she moved to, to Barcelona when she was 21, when she ran away from home. And she started working for, uh, yes, for fashion model, but also for great artists, uh, the, the famous picture of Elsa with Salvador Dali. I mean, Dali in Port Ligat did an incredible work on, on Elsa in, in the sense that... Uh, she will never be the same after modeling for Dali for, uh, for that shooting. But at the same time, coming back to New York, of course, uh, she, she was a model at the time, but she immediately came into what people called the crowd of Studio 54, which was not exactly that. It was a little bit stigmatized. It was, in my eyes, it was composed by incredibly sophisticated artists that uh, influenced Elsa very much. And uh, this is when she turned into something more, which was her desire to become a real artist and the jewelry designer and what she did, thanks to the people that she met in New York. But tell me what her family background was like. She was this sort of unconventional beauty, a very androgynous style. But what was the background that she came from that formed her? Well, Elsa was the the daughter of her father. Her father was the founder of the most important, a giant oil company in 1933. The influence of her father was extremely important. She told something to the Wall Street Journal a few years ago in which she said, whatever I did, I did it for him. And this is not the case that the fact that uh, she dedicated uh, her charity foundation to to him at the beginning in the year 2000, because she really wanted to honor the memory of the man who was the most important man of her life. Obviously, she came from a very wealthy family. Her mother was... uh, an, an aristocrat artist that also influenced her very much. She was a poetess, but her father, the, 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 also the capacity in business of her father was extremely clear in Elsa's development in, in her professional life. And uh, at the beginning, obviously, belonging to such typical traditional family of Italy of the 50s, uh, the family was not exactly happy about Elsa's choices to become a model or then to make jewelry design. But so did she fight them very early oh, very on? Did she go on her own path? And as soon as she could at 21, because at the time to be of major age, you have to be 21, she immediately ran away from home. She wrote a letter to her father and she left. And she moved to Milan at the beginning, working with uh, Dado Torrigiani, who was a very famous architect at the time. And she started to do her first, uh, something that she never developed uh, seriously somehow, this interior design kind of things uh, that are so important in every single houses that she um, built uh, or lived in in the rest of her life. And then she moved to to Spain. Barcelona, for sure, was extremely important. But at the time, Barcelona was not the Barcelona that we know nowadays. So it was quite complicated to start working with. But the presence of Salvador Dali and of all the artists belonging to this important movement, which was called La Gauche Divine at the time, like Xavier Corvero, who was her lover for a long time, who was a very important sculptor, Spanish sculptor, or Colita, who is the most important uh, living uh, photographer in Spain now, really changed her approach 
to aesthetic. And she started to see things from a different angle, starting from Barcelona. So do you think it was that moment that really trained her eye for things that could be treasures, things, objects, however humble the material? Or do you think, I mean, she must have grown up with some beautiful things. Yes, she grown up, but she probably didn't crystallize them since the beginning. Everybody knows the story, for example, how the bone calf started, you know, because she, when she was a child, close to Elsa's apartment in Rome, in Via Veneto, there is a very famous Capucine Chapel. Uh, which is done only by bones of the monks that died in this in this church. Yes, I've been there because actually it's also an, um, formed an inspiration for Delfina de Letras. Yes, who the Fendi family. She she loved that place. And, the, and Delfina is uh, appreciate very much Elsa. I saw some pieces that she did inspired or using Elsa's pieces as well. Anyway, that that chapel was um, it's shocking. I mean, for me, I, whenever anyway, Elsa was shocked because she was a little girl. But what happened is that she stole uh, one bone and she came back home with this bone. And as soon as her mother realized that she did such a thing, she was furious and she sent her back to the chapel, giving back the bone. And this kind of forbidden thing remained with Elsa all over her life. And imagine the moment she arrived to Barcelona with all the Gaudi uh, buildings that are so much inspired by bones. I mean, every single column at the Sagrada Familia is a bone. It's a huge bone. So this connection between what happened in Rome and what she saw in Barcelona made something changing. And so the, the, the bone calf, obviously, it was developed through the years. Elsa was very slow, but thanks God she was slow because the final result was perfect. And uh, with the help especially of uh, Xavier Corbero, who was the sculptor I was mentioning before, she started in Barcelona to learn how to uh, work with metals. And this is the way it happened that the, the, the bone calf started to become alive and is still mm -hmm. one of the most important and iconic pieces because it's so new, it's so modern that it doesn't... So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the Oscars this year, Venus Williams was wearing it, Liza Minnelli was wearing it. Um, I went to a lunch the other day, Trini Woodall, the great makeup, has a big makeup brand, global makeup brand, was wearing it. Open the Sunday Times style magazine this weekend, fashion shoot, with the bone calf. I mean, it is just relentless in the way that people still are drawn to it. Yes, it, it, there is something fetishistic also with this, with this bone because people wear it uh, all the time like the diamonds by the yard, you know, it's like a lingerie. You never take it off. But coming back to the Oscar night, yes, you're right. But I have to say something because, yes, Hayley Bieber, Venus Williams, everybody, fantastic. But Liza was wearing her own ones. And this is the big difference because Minelli has always worn Peretti all over her life, deeply understanding its meaning, its aesthetic sense, and the elegance. She was like a queen on a throne in her wheelchair. And she managed also to obscure even the immensity of Lady Gaga. So when Elsa arrived in New York in 1968, did Liza Minnelli become a friend immediately? Because you were talking about the friends in those years that were so influential, the Andy Warhols, Diana Vreeland, the great Vogue editor... I mean, how, how important was that group of friends to her? They were extremely important from an, an inspirational point of view because Elsa's jewelry made sense, this is my personal opinion, eh? made sense 
when Holston was pairing them, pairing it, the jewels, with the, 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 the ultra-sweet creations. Made sense when Liza was wearing them in every single concert she did. Made sense when, when Hero was taking these incredible pictures in this fairy tale atmosphere and when Joe Yula was drawing them, sketching them on Lorraine Bacall, for example. And this is the perfect connection because it's, 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 uh, the final result is a work of art. Liza, Joe, Hero, obviously, yes, Andy Warhol, all, also the other people. But this group of people that I just mentioned in my eyes were the most important for, for her um, inspiration. Because she was thinking about what Liza was wearing, like Holston was thinking how, how to make the perfect dress for, El for Liza's concert. And the final result was an interpenetration of a group of incredible artists that were in New York in that very period and that will never come again. And they lived fast, didn't they? It was, you know, chain smoking, vodka, Studio 54... I'm an incredible party type atmosphere as well as working incredibly hard. It was fast. This is right also because many of them died. But uh, for example, the collaboration within, I, I read an article a few days ago of the Boston Museum in which they explained that the artistic collaboration between Elsa Peretti and Hero is the longest collaboration between two artists in history. Really? I didn't know. And this is a research that the Boston Museum did. And it was very impressive because it's true. Uh, Hero was 90, she was 80, and they were still on the phone constantly thinking about the next picture, thinking about the new advertising and talking about whatever. This means that even if it was fast, even if it was with vodka and the rest, the content was so, so strong and profound that cannot be cancelled. They were working somehow. I mean, also Diana Vreeland was there, but who cannot say that Diana was somebody working like hell? I mean, she, and, and the importance of Diana Vreeland in inspiring Elsa and in helping Elsa when she was modeling is incredible. There is a beautiful book that has been published uh, where there are all the letters that Diana Vreeland was used to write to all the magazines or to the designers. And she was supporting Elsa so much because, as you say correctly before, she was so different. At the time, models wanted, had to be blonde, blue eyes, perfectly Barbies. And Elsa was exactly the opposite. She was like a male, tall, like, I don't know, like a giraffe. But Diana Vreeland immediately understood the importance of being different. And this kind of difference remains with Elsa all the time, in the bad and in the good, because obviously she was temperamental, as everybody said. And um, Holston experienced it very well, unfortunately. But uh, being different is the most important um, characterization of Elsa Peretti till the end of her days. So Halston really was the defining relationship in those years, um, wasn't he, in their collaboration. Do you, would you go as far as to say that she was really designing with him on his collection? I, no, I think that there was a huge esteem and respect, but they, they have never created together. Uh, theirs was, uh, as I said before, like an aesthetic um, interpenetration. One inspired the other in a total equal way. And the masterpiece, I mean, was, was the perfume bottle. Will you describe that in case people don't know what you're talking about? It was the first time that uh, Holston decided to make a bottle without a label, for example. Yeah. And, uh, um, but it was so recognizable because Elsa designed it 
starting from the shape of a teardrop that changed a little bit and then became the Holstone bottle. And uh, it was so recognizable without the label, that was so revolutionary as an idea. And imagine that the enormous success they had in two years, they sold $85 million in sales. And it was the second top selling perfume in history after Chanel number no. five. That's unbelievable in that short period of time. Exactly. And it was not only because of the beautiful um, taste of the, of the perfume, it was also for the incredible news in the shape of, of the bottle. And then the bottle became another bottle, and then this bottle became the famous... Uh, the, the, okay. Everything started. The idea of the bottle containing something remains with Elsa all the time, and people understand it. Because the famous classical silver bottle that you have seen in so many pictures was her first design. So you've alluded to their tempestuous relationship. I think a lot of us watched Halston recently, the Netflix series with Ewan McGregor playing the fashion designer. And in it, we see Elsa throwing a sable coat that he'd given her, burning it on a fire because it had a row. Is that true? Well, a lot of people had gossiped around this uh, episode uh, and uh, forgetting the importance uh, of the artistic relationship between these two giants. Yes, uh, I was not there, of course, but I read what... Uh, <laughs> you might have snatched it off the fire. <laughs> but uh, I read what Joe Yula wrote in his memories, what Bob Colacello wrote in his book, and also it is mentioned in the Andy Warhol's diaries. So, uh, yes, the sable coat was the compensation for the bottle, the bottle of perfume. Uh, Halston asked Elsa, do you want $25,000 or do you want a sable coat? And she chose for the sable coat. What happened in that moment, I don't really believe it is so much important, but for sure it was threw away in the fireplace. Their relationship didn't end as in the TV series is explained, but they keep on uh, getting along and getting together. Obviously, it was one of these crazy, shocking moments that happened in the life of two people that were connected not only from a professional relationship, but from a profound sense, as I said, of respect, esteem and love. Elsa considered Alston the most important man of her life. He gave her so many advices. He was really, and don't forget, he was the one who introduced Elsa to Tiffany. And this has changed the history of Elsa and of Tiffany <laughs> for, forever. And didn't he give her the advice to make her jewellery always in small, medium and large exactly. sizes? Exactly, because at a certain moment, Elsa was worried that her jewellery were too expensive. She wanted to, she was confused and she didn't know how to approach the fact that, and she asked, and she asked Olson for an advice and she said immediately, Elsa, make them small, medium, and large. And it was a huge success. Since now, if you go to Tiffany and you want a bone cuff, for example, you have three sizes or whatever else. Also because women are different. There are women that are tall, women that are short, women that are um, different also in terms of uh, from where they come from. No, a German woman is totally different from a Japanese woman. And you need to tailor on them the jewel if you want that this woman really feel comfortable with that. So the first piece of jewellery she, she designed was a small bottle pendant that you could either put scent in or a flower. 
But that wasn't for Halston, was it? That was for another fashion designer. Yes, she well, she did it for herself. Starting the the the, the first sample, she started to do it for herself. It was 1969, so really much before everything started. At the time, Elsa had a beautiful relationship with Giorgio di Sant'Angelo. And uh, once that he saw the first sample, he immediately decided to produce it for the catwalk. And he put a little rose, a little blossom of a rose on, on the top of this bottle. And it was an incredible success. Everybody took pictures. It was in every single ma- fashion magazine at the time. She did it uh, with um, this handcrafter who passed away, whose name is Signora Bad, who was the first one Elsa worked with um, at the end of the 60s in Barcelona. I mean, he he was extremely important in her professional career because he really understood, even if he was somebody doing little things in a little laboratory in the Gracia neighborhood, when Elsa met people that understood the way she was seeing things, the result was incredibly perfect. So she began, she discovered her own sleek, minimal, ascetic, and particularly working in silver. What was it about silver that she preferred? Well, um, talking about the bottle, the bottle obviously started in silver, but as you know, she developed it uh, in, uh, in green jade or in raw crystal. That are, there is a connection, then we will talk about this. But obviously, yes. the passion for silver started because it was cheaper and because it was easy to work. This is also this, because Elsa was doing them with her hands at the beginning, and she didn't study for this. I mean, it was a development in her work. And in the 70s, silver was really neglected, and she succeeded to reintroduce it at the top levels as a real precious metal. And, she, and most of all, she succeeded to convince Tiffany to bring it back, because at the time, really, Tiffany was not comfortable with, with silver. And obviously, uh, the, the touch, because for Elsa, it was extremely important to touch whatever she was wearing. And silver is shine, is smooth. And little by little, yes, she converted to gold some pieces, but it had to be gold for a reason. So do you think it also it's a sort of absence of colour in silver that suited her minimalist look that she wanted. Also, the reflections, Mm. the light that comes from silver is not the same light that comes from gold. The touching of silver is very similar when you touch a a green jade or when you touch the rock crystal. It's like a baby skin. And then she seemed to tap into all these sort of natural organic forms. Very simple, things we've all seen a million times but wouldn't ever recreate in her vision. The way she recreated it was extraordinary. The teardrop, the bean, the open heart. I mean, shapes that we've all seen, but she made them her own and made it so that every single generation then rediscovers it in her vision. Yes, it's true. She never copied nature, but she did something that recalls what, uh, yes, a teardrop or a bean. Yes, this is the artistic part of Elsa because just recreating nature, it's very simple. But to make it your own piece and to make people understand that this is a teardrop and that you have to wear it around your neck in order not to have it in your eyes, 
is such a strong message that people, this is why we were talking about before, about the kind of, uh, how do you say, when, when you feel that you, you want this peace for you and you feel it that you don't want to take it away, not even when you go to sleep. Uh, it's, really, it's really unique. And yes, uh, but not only this, because if you think about the claw necklace, the claw necklace started with the tooth of a tiger or of a bird, I don't remember. And then it was developed and developed and it became one of the most incredible pieces. Always at the Boston Museum, I saw the first sample. They have it, I don't know how they get it because neither Elsa had this copy. It was in ivory at the time it was allowed. And it is so incredible to see how in the beginning of the 70s, Elsa was really doing something that has been never seen and that you, you feel that it is a, a, a tooth but you don't really see it, like the open heart, it's not nature, but only her was able to see the, the heart in the middle of this vacuum, which was inspired, yes, of course, Henry Moore, this kind of artist, but the final result was really to see things from a different angle, to be different, and to make something that was never done before. And obviously, a shell became a calf, a scorpion became a necklace, a snake became a belt. This, once that started, was impossible to be stopped. And then her love for nature was also, uh, as you know, Carol, in, in, uh, in her uh, charity foundation, because mm -hmm. she was always very much involved in preserving uh, wildlife uh, uh, um, animals and the conservation of the, of the environment. Uh, so it is all over her life. And the choice to live in the countryside in the last period of her life, taking care also of the aesthetic. So Holston decided to introduce her to Tiffany. Was it John Loring in those days or was that pre-John Loring? No, uh, John Loring was not involved. I think it was previous. And for sure, Holston and Elsa went to Tiffany with Kerry Donovan and with George O'Brien. And at Tiffany, there was Walter Howing, who was the chairman mm -hmm, of the, the board, president. and Harry Platt, who was the president, yes. And, and uh, I, I remember always this, and Elsa was wearing, she was wearing a, a Holston caftan, and uh, she was uh, with this uh, Spanish peasant basket uh, full of cigarettes and makeup, and she arrived like this. Uh, but uh, why it was a success? Because it was the perfect moment. Platt said that they were looking for somebody who could capture the mood of the young woman as well as of the old woman. Someone who could make jewels women could wear with jeans as well as with their bone gowns. And she was there. It was the perfect moment. It was sort of a new sense of freedom. And I guess women were looking for something a bit more fresh and liberated and... They were dressing in a different way, as you say, this much more sort of caftan style than, and the sort of formality and big match sets of jewellery that people have been selling suddenly seemed very old-fashioned and matronly, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. And, if, and especially jewels that women could buy by themselves without a man. I mean, to make it affordable was always for Elsa a, a strong point. The first uh, Diamonds by the Yard were sold uh, at the beginning, when she introduced the collection, were sold for $85, something like this, and it was a 0.3 carats. I mean, this was another important message for women at the time in the 70s. 
you don't need a man to buy you jewelry. You can do it. You can make it yourself. Or a diamond. Your first diamond exactly. can be your own. And you can have a stream of them that go around your neck. <laughs> yes, exactly. It depends. <laughs> this is why it's by the yard. <laughs> and I read in the first kind of couple of years, they, Tiffany sold about two miles of diamonds by the yard. <laughs> yes, it was. It, it became the most copied jewel in the, in the history. This is also to be said, because nobody thought to mount diamonds like this in the past. Uh, Elsa, obviously, she was inspired by her grandmother, who was wearing something very similar. And so she thought about this. But the idea to put one after the other on, on a necklace, like spot of lights, like drops of lights, uh, made the diamonds completely, completely different. And the name Diamonds by the Yard was given by Holston. It was an Holston idea. Was it? Yes. And this is why I always told you that Holston, whatever the TV series can say, whatever it happened with the Sable Coat, the artistic relationship was so strong and so important uh, for both of them, that there are, there should be studied more in my eyes. And, you know, you talked about some of the other materials that she worked with, lacquer, rock crystal, jade, and this was all quite inspired by her love of Japan, wasn't it? Yes, but we have to remember that the, her, Elsa did her first world tour in 1969 with Paco Rebesse, so before Tiffany. Paco Rebesse is still alive. He's a fantastic um, gallery uh, own. He, he has an incredible gallery, art gallery in Barcelona. He's 101. They were friends in Barcelona. He took her to make this tour and they went to all the East and Japan was too much important for Elsa. When she came back with Harry Platt, when she came back with Tiffany, it was even difficult to explain to an American company the importance of lacquer, for example, or to explain the importance of, I mean, also China with the green jade with the, and, and Jaipur. Uh, okay, let's, let's do one by one. Lacquer uh, became so much important because in my eyes, Elsa was attached by, attracted by the, the fact that it was so light. It's so light. And so this magnolia wood, where it is done with this traditional three, four, six times lacquer that they do one by one, that make it different one by one, the kind of color that this jewel can have, even if there is not a precious metal, it becomes a piece of jewelry because of the work that there is behind, of the respect of this handcraftery. And, um, and so the bamboo, uh, purse, uh, you say, the, the evening bags that she did. Obviously, they were inspired by the Spanish basket of the peasants, but they became the most incredible pieces that, in my eyes, have been never created. And she succeeded to put together Japanese artisans that were doing the bamboo, and then the Chinese artisans that were doing the little round green jade to close the bag. And then the leather artisans, so, I mean, this is a, quite a job, trust me, because artisans prefer to work <laughs> to make a, a final, a final uh, jewel. So she was putting in complex cultural references into her designs, but also getting the craftsmen in those environments to create these pieces. Exactly. She was extremely important for the craftsmen because they, the ones who succeeded to understand her vision became artists as well. And uh, nowadays I still work with uh, some of them that uh, started to work with Elsa 50 years ago and they are incredibly, incredibly capable to understand the final production. But imagine in Jaipur, when she went to India and she decided to well, she, her idea has always been to do this 
um, gold bra. And this is why we were talking about the importance of gold when it makes sense. Uh, the gold bra, it, it was really different, but it's really Peretti. It's the way metal become really like, like a, a textile. And it, it goes on your body and it really takes the shape of your body. Imagine that a scarf, a, brass, a mesh scarf, is composed by approximately 43,000 links. So imagine the work that there is behind one of these pieces. And she succeeded to find a company in India that was able to teach to another company in US, which was called Whiting and Davis, thanks to the help of Samuel Beiser, who was the first director of the FIT uh, in the jewel department. And they are sti still this, uh, the, the wife of Samuel who's doing this, um, this incredible piece of art, the, the mesh. And it's uh, a top selling for Tiffany because it's unique. Did Walter Hoving just say, Elsa, go, go do what you want, work with who you want, come up with whatever you want, or did they try and um, influence her in any way? It was always a struggle. I mean, she was fighting all the time. And fighting with the American businessmen at the time was not so easy for a woman. Uh, she was really... Imagine how much she struggled for having her own advertising, which was... It's important because it is exactly the way she wanted to be presented to the public. An artist needs to be known and you need to find a photographer, an artist that is able to understand who you are and what is the message behind the advertising. And you can believe that at the beginning at Tiffany, they were able to understand the creativity of an artist, of a Japanese artist like Hiro. No. <laughs> it was very difficult to, to the, the, the iconic picture of the bone on a real bone, of the bone calf on a real yes. bone, with the, all the little bugs that are, because there is always something alive. In, Elsa always wanted something alive in her picture. So find the little bugs in Connecticut, no, wrong color, right color. So, I mean, at Tiffany, they were <laughs> like, they said, no, it's, it's too much. But struggling and being so stubborn, has made her possible to change the company somehow. And she was such a perfectionist in everything she did. I guess she drove through these designs, the materials, working with the craftsman, as well as, as you say, the, the bureaucracy at a, at a corporation like Tiffany. Yes, and as I said before, she, she mentioned it always, yes, I'm slow. But I'm slow, of course I'm slow, because sometimes some pieces are still not finished for her. I mean, obviously, for us, they are absolutely perfect. But I remember how long she took to finish one, one glass, for example. Years. Because she always said it is not absolutely perfect and nobody was able to see the problem. It was absolutely perfect. And very much jewellery was not, even though she had her fashion background and emerged through it, jewellery to her was not fashion. It was, should never be something that was discarded for something new in the future. Uh, this is difficult to make it understand to the nowadays uh, <laughs> world. For sure, what, whatever design we are talking about, Elsa, we are talking about design designed 40, 50 years ago. And they are still top selling. So maybe she was right. It's not fashion. 
And I think the other legacy from her her fashion background was that jewellery should be comfortable because she suffered a lot as a model wearing kind of very uncomfortable accessories, didn't she? And thought whatever it is, it should really feel as part of the woman's body. Did she adapt them to her own body? Did she try them out to make sure they were comfortable? Every single piece was worn for years before putting into production. And um, I, I make an example, the earrings, no? to, to be sure that earrings that not go into your hair or that are not too heavy or, or a bangle or, or just, a, just a single bracelet. If you do like this as a woman, you have the risk if you touch your, your hand or your hair with your, with your hand and you're wearing a bracelet that can be um, attached to your hair, uh, this is very uncomfortable. Or thinking about how to close a necklace behind you. If you don't have a man to do it, you have to do it by your own. You have to feel comfortable before you go out at night. And so these kind of little details were extremely important for her, even more than the design. And she was wearing them constantly. At the end, then uh, many of them became her jewelry. I mean, she was wearing the bone cuff all over her life. She, she has never yeah, taken yeah. it off. And the diamonds by the yard as well, very little but always on her neck. And she must have really enjoyed her collaboration with Tiffany because she stayed for so long. And I guess at some point she did have the decision whether or not to just create on her own and create the Elsa Peretti stores even. And she obviously chose not to. No, she has never thought about this, or at least she never wanted to. Uh, not mm-hmm. that she didn't thought, but she never wanted to. Her, her marriage, her wedding with Tiffany... Uh, was something, maybe it was her education, no? The the 50s uh, Italian education. You get married, you remain married all over the time of your life. Uh, So, no, I believe that with Tiffany, it was in the good and in the bad. Obviously, you you discuss, but it was something that it was not touchable for her. She respected the company, especially at the beginning with chairman of the board like Bill Cheney, I mean, Mike Kowalski, they were so important, especially Bill Cheney. I mean, William Cheney was, was really not only the chairman of the board of the company, but it was a friend and mm-hmm. somebody who really understood Elsa in the 80s. And um, he struggled for her. He was the one who really, uh, the company was able to, uh, to, to, to stand by her and she was very trustful. Well, Michael Kowalski said that you know, with Elsa, they moved beyond um, jewellery into design history. <laughs> it really was that important to them. It's absolutely true. He said this sentence at the opening of the permanent collection that the British Museum did yes. uh, years ago. I remember it was an incredible speech and it was really felt by Mike Kowalski. He was so proud to be there and to, and to honour Elsa with such an important... It was the first time that... The, one of the, I mean, most important museum in the world was honoring Elsa, but also his company. And um, it will remain forever. And what do you think she'd think of the new incarnation of Tiffany now owned by LVMH? Oh, I mean, she had not the time, at the time she was not so much, everything happened so close to her passing away. Yes. And uh, so she was not worried. She was absolutely she knew that her contract will be respected and she wanted to work. No, I cannot say anything that she said regarding this movement. She was absolutely excited to, to, 
to go ahead. Obviously, she was tired, uh, she was um, older, uh, it was, everything was more complicated, but uh, uh, she was creating since the last moment uh, of, um, of her life, she was there thinking about her job, uh, her pieces and, and Tiffany. What was the last piece she was working on? The, the, the last piece as I was thinking about was dreaming about. It's not only thinking, she was really dreaming to do this piece. Is a, um, a, a snake necklace completely done in carved black jade. And it's an incredible job, very difficult to, to, to make it so with the movement. Yes. And she asked Mr. Chu to start working on it. Mr. Chu is, um, Jonas Chu, is uh, an incredible handcrafter based in Hong Kong. And he worked with Elsa since 50 years. He started with Angela Cummings. You remember Angela Cummings? Mm -hmm. She yes, was absolutely fantastic, but so different from Elsa. Absolutely yeah. different. And, and Mr. Chu was so in love with the jewels of Angela Cummings because it was, there was such kind of lot of work in doing every single details. And when Elsa arrived and she just wanted the bean in green jade, he was in shock because he said, it's too simple. And then she, he realized that it was not simple at all to make it perfect. And now I hope that Mr. Chu is able to, to fulfill this desire and to, to make at least one of a kind because it, it will be fantastic. So it's not something that will go into big production, but you hope... I guess it's too difficult with the jade, with the carving, as you say. It will not be in big production. I think it no. will be a job that for doing one of these, you have to work for months. And I believe that it will be probably one of a kind or a special production for, for a period. Let's see what happens. They are really working because all the, the, all the spin of the snake has to be done piece by piece and to be connected piece by piece and, 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 and engraved. <laughs> it's not easy. In green jade would have been beautiful but let's start with the black jade and let's see what happens well, why did she like snakes so much because snakes were everywhere in the countryside where she was used to stay in San Martivelle and uh, like like scorpions also scorpions are scaring but at the same time she was so uh, impressed by the complexity of their skeleton of the the way they move and the way they are done so this is why she was always collecting all the snakes all the skins of the snakes, observing them constantly in order to make the final production, which is not exactly a snake, it's something absolutely different from all the jewelry designers had designed the snake um, necklaces. But none of them is comparable with what Elsa did. And um, the, the, the final result is absolutely different. Love for nature, love for the complexity of the skeleton. Uh, this is the starting point. And she, she did, as you say, the last part of her life, She, so much time was taken up restoring this rural Spanish village at San Martivel in Catalan that she bought in the 60s. And, and will that be... I know she had a big collection of objects there that she collected, probably like the snake skin. And, and will that remain like that as part of the foundation, Stephanie? Um, San Martivel, in my eyes, is not only a group of houses. It's not only the mm -hmm. shelter where she wanted to stay after coming back from New York, Studio 54, to be creative. It is something more important. The more and more I stayed in San Martivel, I realized that it was her final masterpiece. 
um, which is not completed. It was a way buying a house after the other in this village and to make them so pretty. And we come back to a, the idea of the interior designer, of the atmosphere that you create in a house, of the kind of light, of the kind of flowers, of every single detail. This made Saint Martivelle um, a piece of art that is still not completed because she didn't want to complete. She wanted to keep on working on it. And uh, I, I know that there are so many pictures in many magazines that um, take the beauty oh, of... We did it in Vogue a couple of times, exactly. big stories of exactly. her at home in San Martivelle. And I remember the photographer mm -hmm. who came. They were, And then you realize that at the end, instead of the dining room, of the living room, the most beautiful room is the kitchen, for example. <laughs> Because... so. She also obliged the photographer of Vogue not to take the picture of the most beautiful place where Liza Minelli was seated, but the most incredible no, attention for details in a room that is normally not so much important for a magazine like Vogue, like a kitchen, like a bathroom, like a wardrobe. So for me, it's important. Yes, as you correctly say, there are a lot of memories and all over her life is in San Martí. Uh, when when um, she decided to move from her apartment in New York was a few months before she passed away. And um, so the move arrived to San Martí and I had the privilege to be with her in order to open every single box and to put every single thing. It was, it was a cascade of memories. Of, um, it was a sad moment, no? It was not easy for her to, to, to go through an entire life, uh, an entire life in New York. But everything fitted perfectly in San Martivelle and she succeeded to put everything in the right position and uh, to organize uh, an archive that is still ongoing. But she did an incredible job by herself, every single letter, papers, photograph, Polaroids, these kind of things. So San Martivelle is the genius loci, I don't know how to say in English, is really the heart, the soul of everything Elsa did, much more than New York. Was she sad to leave New York? No, she was absolutely ready to leave. She thought a lot. The last time she went to New York, it, it was for, um, I think it was the 35 years with Tiffany. And we went together, so it was more than 10 years ago. And um, we went together, she spent like three, four months. Then she left the apartment and I believe she decided from that moment on that it was... Um, that when she closed that door, it was really, the door was closed. And uh, she never went back to, to New York. And at a certain moment, she decided to, to leave that apartment, which was an historical penthouse, because as I told you, it was the place where she met Holston, where she was staying with Holston. And uh, it was the apartment of the picture of Helmut Newton. <laughs> It's the same terrace. But the door was closed forever. I understood it at the beginning. She had not the courage maybe to do the move, but then she did it. And once the move was done, she passed away. It's rather poignant, isn't it, that just as she got settled, everything was where she wanted it, and then she passed away, because this was a shock for you. But this um, comes back to the story of the, of, the, of the education of the 50s. No, She was a woman of the Italian post-World War, And so educated to discipline, she was very disciplinated. Her duty was the most important things, whatever the duty should be. But in this case, she really wanted to put everything in order. And uh, she, she, obviously nobody was thinking about uh, Elsa was passing away. It was absolutely uh, not expected, but somehow uh, she didn't want to postpone it. And she was mm -hmm. working on this archive uh, all day long. We started at nine o'clock in the morning, finishing at eight o'clock in the night, every single day, 
till the moment she said, okay, it's done. Now everything is in order. Whatever I want to keep in the archive is there. And whatever I don't want, I threw it away. So it was the way she was working. And it was an incredible and successful way. Discipline. How did she feel about her fame? Did she embrace fame or did she... Did she want to hide away in San Martivelle and, and escape it? I think she was the most shy person I'd never met in my life. She was terrified by uh, being on a stage, something like this. Or she was very also worried when she was doing an interview. She was not relaxed with the, the popularity that she can um, have all over her life. Uh, obviously, San Martivelle was absolutely perfect for this, even if San Martivelle was not a place where she was alone. She was always surrounded by, by friends, by artists. I mean, there are so many pictures of Joe Yula making paella, of um, Liza Minelli coming for dinner. So she took the word to San Martivelle, but she felt protected probably, and um, only friends were allowed to be there. Uh, but she was very shy, very shy. And was she surprised? How did she feel that her designs, that she remained this best-selling designer after all those years, half a century of, before she des- after she designed them? Yes, probably she was surprised somehow, but at the same time she was repeating, you see, I was right. I insisted so much to do it this way and we are still selling it. And more than selling, it's not important for her that people were buying it. It was much important for her that people were still loving her pieces, Mm -hmm. that mother were used to give the open heart to the daughter or to to buy, that that it became something that really comes from heart that you give to somebody that you really love. Also, this was important for her. And realizing that it was still without, uh, I mean, doing so much because Elsa was, as I said, shy. She was not giving interviews, maybe only to you. She gave an interview a few years ago in, in, in New York penthouse. In, sorry, in Rome. In, in Rome, Rome. It was in Rome. In Rome. Yes. Uh, it was really um, an event. And, uh, and, um, but just be- not because she was feeling like being the divine uh, artist, but just because she was uncomfortable talking about herself and uh, and being uh, on the stage uh, but uh, yes she was very happy that people were still loving her pieces and she wore her bone cuff every day what other piece of jewelry did she wear every day huh. but she, she was not wearing so many obviously she was um, because she wanted to feel her pieces she she loved so much this paco cuff the paco cuff uh, i don't know if you can Few people know it. It's uh, it's in production for Tiffany. Uh, it, it, it's something that she designed many years ago. It's beautiful. Probably has not been so much advertised uh, in the, uh, by the company in the stores. But it was something she was wearing together with the bone calf together. And then she was wearing the belt. She loved her belt, and uh, she was wearing always a very tiny diamonds by the yard, very small, a point three even less, and. Um, and and ah, the comma earrings, always the comma earrings, always in silver. She never, I've never seen Elsa wearing gold. But well, she also was saying that uh, since she was, um, the hair were brown and now they were white. It works much better to wear silver for an older lady, and it's true. It was so chic. Everything was chic. I believe so. It's it was a different kind of chic. It was not the typical American upper upper class chic of the time, which was fantastic, beautiful, but different. Elsa was uh, naturally chic. It was class. Uh, It was a question of blood. 
It was not a question of attitude. It was very natural. And uh, the way she smoked, the way she moved her hand, no? it was uh, absolutely inspiring for everybody and inspiring respect, which was something like a queen, that you feel the royalty. The queen of jewellery design, that's for sure. What would she have liked her legacy to be? For sure, the, um, the importance of um, the name of a father, uh, because when she decided to establish the Charity Foundation in the 2000s, she really wanted to make it eternal in order to remember the name of her father. So in terms of, uh, because there are two kinds of legacies, now you can talk about uh, personal legacy and, uh, and, uh, and the legacy of your art that are different. So th- I believe that uh, in this moment, uh, I think what I can say is that uh, the, the foundation she established to do the good for the good, to, to do things uh, really for helping people. Because yes, it's a charity foundation, but it's also involved in philanthropy, in human rights protection, in environmental protection. And um, this Uh, way of thinking of Elsa to give back uh, something that she has received, no? Uh, it was very important for her. And this kind of respect for the people who are disadvantaged or that are less lucky of she was, it's a way for her to give back to the world, to thank the world uh, for what she received. And she wanted to do in the name and in the memory of Nando Peretti, of her father. That's so nice. And she's left us all this legacy of these, these wonderful jewels that um, generations will keep wearing and passing on. Absolutely, Through their yes. families. And to inspire it, also somebody, some new artist to develop it, because in my eyes, after Elsa, at the moment, I really don't see nobody, uh, no, no, no other jewel designer that made the same revolution. Uh, there are fantastic jewelry designers, there are fantastic ideas, but such an important turning point has not been done yet. And uh, for the moment, in, from an historical point of view, I think that we are stuck with Elsa Peretti. This was the last revolution in jewelry design. Uh, We're we- happy with that. We are happy. <laughs> we are stuck with her. And um, thank you so much, Stefano, for sharing some insights into her work ethic and her work and, and life with her. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. It has been very important for me to talk with you, very emotional. And um, I hope to see you very soon in London. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jules Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwilton.com slash podcasts, or the link in my bio on Instagram at carolwilton. And... Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed and leave us a rating and a comment. We would love that. Thank you. Join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when I'll be talking about a collection created for one of the world's greatest rock stars. Join me then. Goodbye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, Illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. Mm-hmm.